Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. And I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. Each episode, we bring in a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Ken Caldera, who is Senior Staff Scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science, a Senior Scientist at Breakthrough Energy, and a professor at Stanford University. He studies the environmental science of climate, carbon, and energy with particular interest in modeling the Earth system and the energy transition, and in using experiments and observation to study our changing coasts and coral reefs. Ken Caldera is an accomplished scientist, an interesting character, and he has a fascinating history, which we discuss. He started out as a computer programmer on Wall Street, was an anti-nuclear activist for a time, and has made major contributions to earth sciences, alongside advising Bill Gates on climate issues for over a decade. His contributions to earth and science are, are wide-ranging, including some of the foundational work on the importance of ocean acidification, some of the earliest modeling work on solar geoengineering, practical observational oceanography work on coral reefs, including some perturbative experiments to test the impacts of ocean acidification there. And now he spends a lot of his time working on the challenges of the energy transition. And on a personal note, whenever I've come across Ken's studies, I've always been incredibly impressed by their creativity. So many of them have left me thinking, wow, that's such an obvious and quirky thing to do to a climate model. I wish I'd thought of it myself. And I'd add to that, when I read Ken's writing and listen to his speaking outside of the academic context, I always find him to be a very impressive communicator. For example, on Twitter, which is a a site that is known for bringing out the worst in people, his tweets are really on point, hit on the right notes, and assume the best in those with whom he disagrees. And in this conversation, we cover a wide range of issues, as one would expect, Of course, his background across diverse professional settings, as Pete noted, the potential for political influence on scientific research, such as when he was one of the national laboratories within the United States, what he's learned about communicating complex scientific topics, the technical and political feasibility constraints on rapidly changing energy systems, something we we spend quite some time on the ideal and second best climate policy, and the role of pragmatism versus radicalism in climate movements. Uh, So without further delay, our conversation with Ken Caldera. Today, we're joined by Ken Caldera. Ken is a senior scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science, and he is also a senior scientist at Breakthrough Energy. He studies the environmental science of climate, carbon, and energy, and has particular interest in modeling the Earth system and the energy transition, and in using experiments and observation to study our changing coasts and coral reefs. Ken, could you give us a little sense of your background? How did you get into this work? Yeah, I started out as a math major, but then when it got to infinite dimensional topological spaces and all this kind of stuff, I started getting lost. And meanwhile, I started taking philosophy courses and the philosophy courses were small. The undergraduates got invited to the parties at the professor's houses and things, and it was just a lot more fun. And so I ended up almost a math major, but I graduated a philosophy major. I was going to take a year off before going to graduate school in philosophy. And in that year, in the entire United States, there was one tenure granted in philosophy departments because basically as philosophy professors were uh, retiring, they were just shrinking departments. So that job prospect wasn't so good. 
when I was in high school, I learned how to do computer programming. And so in that sort of post-collegiate gap year, which ended up extending to five or six years, I got work as a computer programmer because at that time you didn't need a computer science degree. Just if you knew how to do it, you could get the job. So anyway, I ended up being a contract programmer in the financial district in New York City, doing things like keeping track of corporations, stocks and bonds, and where I worked for mergers and acquisitions of combining books for different companies. And then also did work for the New York Stock Exchange in the enforcement division, uh, looking for insider traders and things like this. But I saw in the New York Times a newspaper article on the melting of Antarctica, and it was a report from a AAAS conference in 1979. And Steve Schneider was speaking at a AAAS conference talking about the loss of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And I thought, you know, my God, are humans really so powerful that we're going to be melting ice sheets and so on? And then I actually made posters and wheat pasted them around downtown New York City saying, now the ice sheets, what's next? And this was like 1979, early climate activism. I used to get the Nation magazine, which is a sort of lefty New York magazine. And oddly enough, uh, Marty Hoppert, who ran the Earth and Energy Group in the Applied Science Department at New York University, put ads in that in the Nation magazine looking for graduate students. I went by and first I talked to Marty Hoffert, and he's a great guy and still a great friend, but sometimes a little self-focused. And then later on, I went and interviewed with Mike Rampino, who was less prominent as a scientist, but better at helping students and really putting the students first and wanting to help with education. And it was a really great decision because Mike really wanted to help people and not just exploit people. I started taking night courses at NYU. Uh, just on climate-related things, I turned out to be one of their, if not their best students. And so they offered me a fellowship. And Marty ran a really interesting department because it was the first place in the world that, that I know of that really integrated energy research and climate science. So in the mid-1980s, there was a wind turbine on the roof hooked up to electrolysis that was making hydrogen at the same time that we were studying the carbon cycle and climate science. And so it was a really forward-looking program integrating energy and climate at that time. But there were really two tracks in the PhD program, energy science or atmospheric science, which was mostly climate. And I took the atmospheric science track. Yeah, so actually my first paper was working with Mike Rampino was on Gaia. There was this claw hypothesis at that time that plankton were making dimethyl sulfide and that was making clouds wider and that the Jim Lovelock, who recently passed away, unfortunately, proposed that, oh, that the plankton were doing this in order uh, to stabilize climate, which would help them as it was kind of a group selection. And and so I did an evolutionary metabolic analysis of the resources and the feedbacks and showed that the sort of evolutionary pressures to produce this for sort of a global good kind of thing was off by like 12 orders of magnitude. And, uh, and I got that into nature as a, a single author paper, even though Mike Rampino helped me a huge amount. And anyway, so I ended up doing a PhD was on what happened to the climate system at the end Cretaceous mass extinction. So at that time, some kind of bolide hit the planet and wiped out the dinosaurs. But in addition to wiping out the dinosaurs, they wiped out a lot of marine life. And in particular, they wiped out almost all the plankton that makes shells or what's called tests of calcium carbonate. And also all the like, coral reefs around the world disappear from the geologic record at that time. Now, in the long-term carbon cycle, you know, CO2 comes out of volcanoes and mid-ocean ridges and so on, and then silicate rocks weather on land. 
and the cations or the positively charged ions from the silicate rock weathering combines with the CO2 that came out of the volcanoes to make calcium carbonate sediments. And so my PhD dissertation was, well, how did the carbon cycle function when you cut off the mechanism for depositing this calcium carbonate on the seafloor? So the interesting thing was there was a core from the middle of the Pacific Ocean that was still in red mud through this entire period. And so we know that the alkalinity, these cations didn't just build up in the ocean and make the whole ocean super saturated. And we hypothesized that next to little photosynthetic organisms, they would draw out the CO2 from the seawater and make these little microenvironments that were supersaturated and you would get abiotic precipitation. And then after that was hypothesized, people later find, found these formations around the coast called microites and so on. Anyway, this later led to this understanding that the, satur- the deposit of calcium carbonate sediments was very closely related to the saturation state of the ocean. How much the ocean would help carbonate sediments precipitate really led to this whole understanding of ocean acidification and how unusual ocean acidification was in geologic time, that you really have to go to mass extinction events or something like that to find times when the chemistry of oceans is changing as rapidly as So I did a postdoc at Penn State working with Jim Casting, who's a great planetary scientist who looks at the Earth as just another planet. And so that was a really great perspective of Earth science as planetary science. And then after that, I went to Lawrence Livermore National Lab, working with Mike McCracken. And originally, I was planning to go, I really like schematic, simple models. And at Lawrence Livermore Lab, they were trying to build this whole coupled ocean atmosphere, carbon, climate, Earth system model. But it was a full 3D thing working on massively parallel machines. And I wanted to, I was hired by Mike McCracken to do like a little toy model schematic of it. So you do the simulations first in a little toy model that you can run on your laptop. And that would help design the experiments for the big model. About a month or two after I got to Lawrence Livermore Lab, Mike McCracken was appointed the head of the U.S. Global Change Research Program. He left Livermore and went to Washington the new leadership came in and said, oh, we don't do little. We're a big place with big supercomputers. We don't do schematic modeling here. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I looked around and no, nobody was doing the ocean biogeochemistry portion of that Earth system model that, that we were trying to develop. And so I said, oh, I raised my hand. And I... But this time you're working at one of the U.S.'s national labs. Those are part of the Department of Energy. And as such, they report indirectly to the U.S. president. If my chronology is right, you're talking about either the late Reagan era or the George H.W. Bush administration. I'm curious if you felt or know that any of your work there was politicized either in the the climate context or in the nuclear weapons context, which is what these national labs were originally established for. Yeah, in the Bush administration, there was a time when somebody from the EPA looked at fish in a stream and the fish downstream from some cattle ranch or, you know, meat, meat packing, not meat packing, but, you know, some kind of uh, cattle facility. The fish downstream were exhibiting sexual dimorphism. So they were, you know, intersex fish and so on. And they attributed to this all the hormones they were feeding the cattle upstream. And the response of the Bush administration was to say, where's your funding for studying this? 
And they responded by just eliminating that whole research group, the finding, rather than addressing the problem. And so that made everybody very nervous at Lawrence Livermore Lab. And they were like, look, if we get a, an actual result about climate science, that could just mean that we're going to eliminate our research group. So let's not get any result that might have a policy implication. And so basically, all they wanted us to do was to try to make climate models run faster on massively parallel computers. And it also just so happened that you know climate models have radiation in them and food dynamics and things like that. And what, what else has food dynamics and radiation in them and so on, but maybe uh, nuclear weapons simulation. And Lawrence Livermore Lab was the home of the hydrogen bomb. And I was always an unclassified side of things, but the codes that are used to make hydrogen bombs are classified. And so if there's a problem with a compiler or getting it to run on the computer, they can't just call up the vendor and say, look, could you look at this code and help us run it? And so when a new machine came in, they would basically give the climate group access to the new machine. And so the climate models were of similar complexity to the weapons codes. And we would basically shake down the machines and the compilers and all this. And then when the, everything was running nice, they would like knock us off of it, bring the machine behind the fence and start running weapons codes on it. But then you try to do something socially positive and you get to live more and then you feel like, oh man, I'm helping them shake down machines for nuclear weapons codes. How did you make the transition from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory back into an academic setting? I kept on looking for jobs and I had a good publication record, but I kept making the shortlist and I never got the job. But yeah, I made the shortlist at Harvard and, and University of Chicago and ATH Zurich and Duke and I, I don't know how many other places. But there's a, one thing is I have a very short planning horizon. I have no idea like what I'm doing two years from now. And the other thing is I've not been really lucky recently just by having a benefactor, but I'm basically really not good at raising money and things like this. Anyway, I kept making the, the short lists, and I, but I would come in there and they would ask, you know, what's your five-year plan? And I would be like, oh, I don't have a five-year plan. My plan is just to do whatever. So eventually in 2005, I got a job at Carnegie Institution for Science, which was a department of global ecology, which was led by Chris Field, who's uh, later became co-chair of IPCC Working Group 2 for, I think, the AR4 cycle. Anyway, that was like really good because basically the job came with funding for two postdocs, could basically do anything you wanted. Oh, yeah. So I felt like, oh, with the ocean modeling, I'd done everything you could do that I could think of to do with coarse resolution ocean models. And that to do high resolution, you needed a whole group kind of dedicated to it. And I didn't want to dedicate a whole group to ocean modeling. And so I, I thought, oh, let me do ocean field work. I mean, hired some postdocs who were graduate students who were well-trained in doing oceanographic field work, like Jack Silverman. And this has been a general pattern of mine. It's like, whatever I get interested in, I'll just try to hire a postdoc who's trained in that, and then they can train me. And that way, like I use my postdoc pool as my self-education program. Yeah, so we got into oceanographic field work, and we did the first manipulative experiments of adding both alkalinity in one experiment and CO2 in another experiment to seawater and then let it flow over across a coral reef and measure the biological response. And to this date, I think these are the only experiments that were done without any artificial confinement, just letting alkalized water and CO2 enriched water flow over in any marine environment uh, without any artificial confinement with the biological response. 
I think the coral reef one is an interesting experiment because I guess that's one of the challenges with a changing world. How do you know how the warming or the change in CO2 is going to impact these systems? And we've got like one set of tools or, or models and another are experiments. And, and so I just want to maybe unpack that because we have on the experiment side on land, we have these free air carbon enrichment experiments where they take a forest or grassland and they stick a bunch of pylons around it and squirt CO2 in so that you try to create an atmosphere that's got double today's CO2 so that you can see how plants change and evolve and so on. And you're doing something similar in the in the coral reefs, right? Yeah. So we had done earlier some experiments, and the idea was the uh, amount of CO2 and so on in seawater naturally varies. And so we tried to first do close observations of natural variation to see if we could tease apart the effects of CO2 concentration on the growth of coral reef. And the problem is that there's a bunch of different factors that co-vary, that colder water tends to absorb more CO2. So there's a correlation between temperature and CO2 concentration. Also in the middle of the day, when there's more photosynthesis, there's a drawdown of the CO2. It also tends to be warmer. And so there's also correlations between amount of light and amount of CO2. And so we did several expeditions measuring a bunch of parameters and then try to tangle out what's temperature, what's CO2, what's light, et cetera, what's nutrients. But all of these things co-vary and it was impossible to tease out the relative importance of different factors just through observation of natural variation. So the idea of a manipulative experiment is you can change one thing at a time. We can just add alkalinities, but in this case, it was sodium hydroxide, or we could add CO2 to a plume of seawater flowing across a reef. And then we would do it typically something like 30 days and then comparing the part where the plume was going across, where the plume wasn't going across and the plume went in different directions each day. And and it was really a signal to noise thing because I think the rate of calcification was, you know, grams per hour over the size of a football field or something like that. That seems quite tricky with a lot of variables that are difficult to control such as the direction that the water current is flowing. How did it go? Before the first experiment succeeded, we had two expeditions that were failures. So the first one was just a complete failure. But every time you fail, you're measuring something and you can write some kind of paper out of it, but you didn't achieve the goal of the expedition. The first one, I think just the experimental design wasn't that good. The second one, there were sort of indications of the result, but the statistics weren't strong enough to really make a compelling case. We just looked at like what's every source of variability that we can control. And just like it was a hundred things for that were each improved by 1%. You know, can we sample to within one centimeter of where we sampled the time previously? Because it turns out, you know, if there's some fluid flow and you're, you know, sometimes there's gradients. And if you're sampling three centimeters deeper, you might be sampling something else than you sampled the other time. And so we just like looked at every single thing. And I'm just so fortunate we had blocked funding from Carnegie Institution If I'm right, it was around this time that you began advising Bill Gates on matters of energy and climate. How did that come about? Around 2007, I got a call from somebody from the Gates universe saying that, oh, that Bill Gates wanted to learn about climate science. And they also called David Keith and they said, oh, could you help do some educational program on climate science? And these were like three or four sessions a year, each of them around four hours long. 
And the first few of them we did ourselves. And we then we started bringing in some other people. But what really happened was after about two years, Gates understood that the climate challenge was real. At first, he was thinking like, look, the emphasis really needs to be on development issues because there's many people suffering today. And that, it, you know, he was thinking, well, maybe this climate stuff is just a distraction. Anyway, he was just wanting to know, is this a real thing to concern or is it just a distraction? And, you know, after a year or two of going through the science of it, he recognized, oh, yeah, no. And, you know, he's very solution oriented and saying, well, look, okay, I got the idea that climate change is real. What are we going to do about it? Most of the emissions coming out of the energy sector. So what, how are we going to transform our energies? Was Gates already funding your work or did that come later? I really enjoy running the learning sessions or doing the learning sessions for Bill because it's an education program for me because basically Bill wants to learn about batteries or something, or he wants to learn about hydrogen or whatever he wants to learn about. If you say to people like, oh, look, Bill Gates wants to learn about batteries, you know, you can find the best people in the world and say, look, are you willing to brief him about it? And then, you know, I would help do the syllabus and the reading materials and prepare the session with them. And so it was also an education for me because I'd get to deal with all the best people in the world on whatever topic was of interest. Now you're at Breakthrough Energy, which is one of Bill Gates' more philanthropically oriented projects. How did you make that transition from being an advisor to him with some of your academic work funded by Gates to being part of his set of projects? So about a year or so into this process, they offered both David Keith and my research program some resources. And I think David funneled his the resources they made available to him into a geoengineering research program. For me, they called me up and they said, oh, Gates is uh, willing to give you some money for a research program. All you need to do is give us a list of deliverable. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they said, what? It's ready to give you money. I said, no, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to hire the best people I could find who are interested in topics of mutual interest. I'm going to act as their facilitator to help do them do the best work they can do. And when they do something, I'll let you know what they did. And they were like, I don't know about that. And hung up the phone. I didn't hear from them for a couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, man, did I just really screw that one up? Like, But then I think it was maybe about three weeks later, they called back and they said, okay, he's willing to do that. But if he doesn't like what you're doing, he'll give you one more year to wind down. That was from, I think, 2008 or something like that. So here we are 14 years later, and I'm more closely related to that operation now than I was then. And so I'm really glad I did that because, as I say, I have no long-term planning ability, and I'm very opportunistic in my science and just like what seems like the highest social and scientific return on investment at this minute that I can do, and let's try to do that. So you've been educating and advising wealthiest people in the world, one of the world's largest philanthropists, and someone who's presumably quite smart. What have you learned about communication of complex and scientific ideas? So I'm working for Breakthrough Energy right now, but I'm still running a research group at Carnegie Institution for Science. And actually, I'm, in, I'm doing this podcast in my capacity as Institution for Science. Anyway, it's a long story, but Google was making me an offer. And I told them, like, look, before I accept an offer from Google, I'll have to show it to the people up at the Gates world. 
I asked Google, I said, look, I really enjoy doing these learning sessions in the Gates world. And can I continue doing that as a Google employee? And I, so I got permission from Google to do that. And so then I went up to the Gates people and said, hey, look, I got this job over from Google, but I really want to continue doing these learning sessions for Bill because they're super fun. And so I can continue doing these at no cost to you. That sound good for you. And then I said, at the end of it, oh, I would be willing to go work for Bill, except that Bill's used to people jumping whenever he wants anything. And I'm used to not doing anything unless I feel like doing it. And so it's only going to work if I have a high degree of autonomy. And so I sent that on Friday. I wasn't really fishing for a job, maybe a little bit, but not really. And then on Monday, I got a call from them and they said, oh, Bill wants to save you from getting lost in the bureaucracy at Google. So he'll continue funding your research operation at Carnegie. And then you can sort of help out up here as you can, trying to bring information into the organization. And so now I'm in a great position that I'm actually working. My paying job is at the Breakthrough Energy, but I'm still having a research group at the Carnegie Institution. And still we have like no specific deliverables and no, I, I've studiously avoided deliverables as much as I could. I, this is actually what I want to get to talking about. I think most people are far too certain of their beliefs. Uh, and I think it's really important to hold beliefs really weakly. And so I think if you bring in one person who believes something strongly and they brief somebody, the listener is likely to believe that that might actually be right. And so I try to like bring in three people who each believe something strongly, but they each believe something different. And then, then the listener has to realize, oh, well, there's really a lot more uncertainty here. I guess Breakthrough Energy deals with one of the areas that you focus on, which is the energy transition. Now, I think there's a lot of people out there who hope that we can get there with just wind, hydropower, and solar. Can we? There's a huge difference between physical possibility and feasibility in the real world. If you ask, is it physically possible to get by on any random collection of technologies, the answer is going to be yes. But then the question is, is that a politically and socially feasible path? Is that likely to happen? Another way of thinking about it is you can say, oh, we could end all war tomorrow. Everyone just has to put down their weaponry and talk like nice bull instead of using violence to try to reach their ends. And that's physically possible to do that. But just calling for that is not a feasible way of reducing violence in the world. I mean, that could calling for that could maybe help reduce violence a little bit, but it's not going to be particularly effective. You know, so there's no technical challenge to stopping violence and war in, on this planet. Throughout most of history, most people have operated in what they believe to be in the narrow interest of either themselves or their family unit or their immediate community. And there's very little history in the history of human existence of people sacrificing to help people on the other side of the planet centuries into the future. I've been listening to a podcast on medieval history, and it really makes you think like if you had a pacifist community somewhere in Europe in the Middle Ages and you were going to re refuse to engage in any form of violence there's a good chance that you would be pillaged and raped and taken over. And so I think through a lot of human history, narrow parochial defense of your community and family and so on, and putting the interests of, of your uh, immediate social unit above others far away. I mean, I think that's been a 
characteristic of our evolutionary past. Are you saying that pursuing a solar, this sort of narrow renewables thing while laudable is just not in your own self-interest because it's too costly? This gets into this, how do we value future generations and so on? Like, to what extent is it in my self-interest for future generations to live well, you know, and having that feeling that I'm helping that? You know, I think if we were willing to pay double for our energy, that we could do a lot. But we see with, you know, the existing uproar over gasoline prices here in the United States and natural gas prices in Europe and so on, that doubling of energy costs are ways that politicians lose elections. You know, if we think of something like carbon dioxide removal, if you're working 40 hours a week in a factory and somebody says, oh, we're going to take your tax money and no, we're not going to give it to your kid's school teacher and we're not going to give it to the police officer uh, and we're not going to build use that to, to patch the holes in the road in front of your house, but instead we're going to send it somewhere far away so they can remove CO2 from the atmosphere and stuff it underground. That you know, I think this is going to be a politically hard sell. You know, in doing this, I don't know, almost 15 years now of doing briefings for Bill Gates, I think I've gone through a learning process that parallels some of his own. And you know, part of the idea of breakthrough energy is that it's much easier to do good when doing good isn't costly. And if you know the right thing to do is not emit CO2 into the atmosphere, well, if the alternate technology is the same cost, yeah, that'll be the deciding factor to make me use the cleaner technology. And maybe if it costs a penny or two more, I might be willing to pay that penny or two. But if it's going to cost me twice as much, well, then I'm just going to use the cheaper one. And, you know, we like to think that morality and economics are somehow completely disjoint and we would, you know, that we wouldn't sell out our morality for cost. But in fact, people do all the time. And, you know, whether we like that or not, basic idea is, look, if you want people to use clean energy technologies, you need to make those technologies cheap as possible. It's one thing for rich countries like the United States or Northern Europe or so on. But if you know, if you think of the global south, where there's all kinds of people in poverty, problems of food access and water access, it's hard to say to somebody whose main concern is keeping themselves fed, keeping shelter, trying to get their kids educated, that they should prioritize century-scale global issues over their immediate needs. And and in a way, you know, worrying about climate change is luxury for people whose immediate needs are pretty well taken care of. If it's contrary to individuals' self-interest, and by extension countries, to aggressively reduce greenhouse gas emissions, why are we witnessing an ongoing transition toward renewable energies? So I really do buy into the program of trying to make clean energy technologies as cheap as possible. And there's all different ways to do that. I mean, Germany did the world a great service by having this energy vendor program and essentially subsidizing the Chinese to bring down the cost of solar photovoltaics. Now, that wasn't their intent. I think their intent was to have a homegrown solar photovoltaic industry and sell it to the world. China, the Chinese government invested in all of these solar photovoltaic manufacturing facilities, but really the costs have come down dramatically. And now for bulk power, if, if you're just replacing natural gas, that wind and solar is the cheapest technology today. And, you know, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. And, you know, we've seen a big success with wind and solar. 
you know, right now, clean energy technologies are the cheapest way of making bulk electricity. What are the challenges? What are the limitations to the speed of this transition and to the uptake of renewable energy sources? The main problem is that they make electricity on their own timetable rather than a human timetable. make electricity when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining. And today's storage technologies are very expensive. To provide reliable electricity with wind and solar, there's a balance between how much extra wind and solar you build and how much storage you need. But typically, you would need several weeks worth of electricity storage to really run a wind and solar-based electricity system. And today, we have more than something like an hour or a couple of hours. And then the other challenges are things like cement and steel and all the you know agriculture and all the things that are not electricity. You know, I think we've seen a big success with wind and solar, and we need similar successes in other technologies and try to just make the good ones as cheap as possible. And if we can make them the cheapest, as wind and solar are now for power, on, but if that could happen for a few more technologies, it could really help. So when talking about the limitations of feasibility of rapidly reducing greenhouse gas emissions, earlier you emphasized those related to the interests of the individual and the prioritization of the local over the global and and the current over the future. What about political feasibility? What have you learned over the years about those constraints as well as opportunities to advance action? The other thing that's really interesting I've learned from seeing more of what's going on up in the Gates universe is this understanding of a portfolio of political strategies that people commonly think about portfolios of energy technology strategies. So we don't know which technology will be the best, so let's invest in a few of them and see what works out. But this idea that there's also a need for a portfolio of political strategies in 2005, I think it was, I did a briefing for some Congress people from the House and some of their staffers. And I was on ocean acidification, but I was basically at that time called for zero emission target as our policy. And the response of the people in the room was to laugh at that, because at that time, the question was arguing about at what level should we stabilize CO2? And I said, oh, I don't think we should think in terms of stabilization levels. We should think in terms of emissions targets. And they said, oh, what should the emission target be? And I said, zero. And they laughed at that. It's really interesting to me to see, you know, here we are 17 years later, and for much of the world, a zero emissions target is centerpiece, whereas less than two decades ago was laughable. So such talk that is outside the bounds of current policy discourse can arguably help shift that Overton window But this brings to mind persistent question in climate change politics and really in all movements in general of what's the proper balance between moderates working within the system and those who are more radical who are trying to push the balance. Does your experience lend credence to the view that it's really the activists and the boundary pushers that are the ones who are having an impact? You need other people to try to get legislation passed. Congress, the funding for National Science Foundation is more or less doubled in the U.S., or it's at least on a trajectory to double, you know, increased funding for Department of Energy. And for increased funding things, you need Republican votes in the U.S. Senate. And that means you're needing votes of people who voted to acquit Trump. You need some people who are going to try to get legislation passed through 
Congress. And that can mean, you know, not pissing off people whose votes you need. And then you need other people trying to widen the Overton window of what's considered politically acceptable discourse. I see now much more where some of the more radical voices can help give space to make the people working on legislative agendas seem more reasonable and centrist. It really disturbs me more when I see people who are working to address climate change issues critiquing each other. Because, you know, let's say some people might be working on a carbon tax or banning fossil fuels or something like that. But somebody else is trying to work on something where you need Joe Manchin's vote and it's in a coal state. If you're saying, oh, we need to block out all fossil fuels, you're not going to get Joe Manchin's vote. And so, and it doesn't mean the person who's working on climate change who wants Joe Manchin's vote thinks that fossil fuels are wonderful. They're making a strategic choice to not be vocal about opposition to fossil fuels to get a vote. I really think that advancing climate change agenda politically depends on having a diversity of voices, each working on in different parts of the spectrum to try to move things ahead, you know, in different ways. Let's step back as broadly as possible on the climate change issue, thinking about globally within policy conversation, politics, scientific research, technological development spoken a bit about limitations, but progress within solar and wind. But what's being underemphasized? Like if you could turn up a dial in the climate change attention world, be it policy or scientific research or technological development, where's this relatively low-hanging fruit that you see that could be grabbed? First of all, I'm not sure how much low-hanging fruit there are. So I think it's going to be a tough, hard slog. Let me preface by saying, first, I think that our predictive skill is really low. And in the same way I've been advocating for a portfolio approach towards political strategies, I think I try to make a bunch of things work. And then at some point, you need to put more money on the things that seem like they're being successful and pull back on some of the things. But I mean, if we could have good policy... I know that seems like a pipe dream in the United States, but I think if we could have a good carbon tax, my preference would be an upstream tax. So when you pull carbon out of the ground or you import it, then you've got a carbon tax and, and just put an economic driver on CO2 emissions reduction, that that would be the single thing. Because as I think most people operate in the fairly narrow self-interest or the interest of their family or maybe community, and by having a, something akin to a carbon Carbon tax would provide that self-interested driver that we need. Taxes are an anathema to most politicians, and it's been hard to get that through, even though if you could make it revenue neutral by distributing it on a per capita basis, and because of the inequities in society, a majority of people would have a net positive cash flow from, from that, and it would actually a way of redistributing income. But anyway, in today's political environment, that doesn't seem likely. A carbon tax has long been the ultimate goal of much climate policy action, but it generally seems out of reach, especially in the U.S. What can be done, if anything, in the absence of a carbon tax? I mean, my sense is that the simple kind of regulations seem to be more politically acceptable. And again, this whole idea of narrow self-interest, if you don't let people build coal plants or you don't let them build natural gas plants, they're going to want the electricity. And so they're going to build a wind or solar or nuclear or something. And so just having prohibitions on building CO2 emitting technologies and just regulations about electric vehicles instead of gas vehicles, 
It might not be the most economically efficient way of doing things, but I think it's a politically acceptable way. But I think these kinds of regulations, this effort to get rid of coal plants, you know, one of the key issues is jobs. Here in California, there's a union of oil and gas workers, which has traditionally been democratic. And they're saying, well, look, we don't want to be flipping hamburgers at in and out We want good jobs that we're trained for. And that's oil and gas drilling jobs. You know, even within the democratic coalition, there's resistance to strong climate change legislation. So I think anyway, a regulatory approach, but then, you know, you need to think of how are you going to make the people who are dis- disadvantaged by these programs that their lives are not destroyed. A common theme that has come up a few times during this conversation is that the climate change problem, or more accurately, the proposed ways to manage the climate change problem, bump up against some aspect of human nature, how we are as social animals that evolved under one set of circumstances, and we find ourselves in a really different set of circumstances than we were a couple hundred thousand years ago. I mean, in a way, isn't the climate change problem a type of squaring of that circle, thinking about, okay, here we we are and here's the world. How can we do the best we can under these circumstances? I mean, this is really, I think, a central problem. Let's say I I turn on the radio and hear about a famine on the other side of the world, or I hear about the condition of women in Afghanistan. And meanwhile, I have a cat in front of me meowing for food. My most likely response is to do something to feed that cat, even though in any ethical framework in the world. And just our brains are designed to respond emotionally to things in our sensory and to respond to people and animals, for that matter, that we're very familiar with or that we see as similar to ourselves and that we just don't have the same level of compassion. Similar thing that, you know, there are millions of people dying every year from aerosols, from fossil fuels, but even just fossil fuels alone is millions of people. And if some kind of aggressor was killing millions of people each year, that there would be a a war. We we would be at war. It's been estimated that aerosols from Chinese power plants wafting across the Pacific Ocean cause something like 10,000 premature deaths of America here. If China was coming, I don't want to be anti-Chinese here. I don't want to be nationalistic. But if China were coming over to the United States and using like direct violence to kill 10,000 Americans each year, we would be at war. And there's something about the abstraction of aerosol-induced deaths that in our evolutionary past, we worried about the neighboring village coming to us and hitting us with a rock on the head while we're sleeping or hitting us with a spear or something like this. And so this threat of physical aggression and violence, our psychologies are very attuned to. But in our evolutionary past, the threat of death by aerosols, that wasn't a huge thing that shaped our thinking. What are the prospects for overcoming this short-sightedness? And perhaps in order to think about that question, we need to go deeper and ask whether there's a biological basis for this limitation. I remember this uh, Carl Sagan book, The Dragons of Eden, and I don't know how good it is as a metaphor, but the idea was that you know we have this kind of lizard, basal, emotional brain, and then above this ancient brain, we have our cerebral cortex that allows us to think rationally and logically. 
And that most of our emotional responses come from our primitive animalistic brain, right? We have the thirst, hunger, desires, fear. And then overlaying that kind of primordial brain is this logical reasoning. You know, many of us who are scientists are trained to try to let that reasoning portion of our brain win out and over those priors that our basal brain might develop. But if we're going to solve the global problems now, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, planning for the long term was maybe storing enough food to get through the winter and worrying about large spatial distances was maybe worrying about the village in the next valley over and whether they would attack us. And so now we've gone from maybe having to worry about the next valley and the next winter to worry about the centuries into the future at global scale. And we're, we just have no emotional evolution hasn't provided us with the emotional structures to respond to those threats. We need to respond to them intellectually through the use of our cerebral cortex. You know, even me know that I respond to the meowing cat more than those of the famine on the other side of the world. I mean, a lot of us know that we shouldn't eat that scoop of ice cream for dessert because while we might get short-term pleasure from it, that in the long term, it's not going to benefit us. And yet we have this high effective discount rate and just go for that short-term pleasure over what we know we should do for ourselves for the long term. And so if we can't even make the sacrifice after dinner to help ourselves in the long run, how, how good are we going to be at making the sacrifice of helping strangers on the other side of the world a century into the future? And so I think we need to work on a culture of compassion and reason and at least aspiring to high ethical standards and at least acknowledge that we should be treating strangers on the other side of the world better than we treat our house cats. I think at the same time, we're not going to solve problems by changing human nature. And I remember when I was I'm, when I was a kid, it used to be commonplace for people to throw litter out the car window when they were driving down the way. And Lady Bird Johnson, President Johnson's wife, she had a campaign of Keep America Beautiful. And basically, they had an education program that you shouldn't throw your garbage out. And people stopped doing that. And it was sort of like this anti-littering campaign and became a social norm that you shouldn't litter. I think that one of the powerful driving motivations for humans is avoiding embarrassment and so on. And I, I think there could be public education programs of, look, the right way to behave is this way. Just like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I just think if there were public education programs would establish social norms of behavior. It's not human nature or our current political leaders that give you hope. What is it that does give you hope for the future? First of all, I think we can improve the political environment. You know, I think that's what we have to work on trying to do. I think we can work also on making these clean energy technologies cheaper. And we can work on the policy side of disincentives to emission. And, you know, so I think we have to work on all fronts simultaneously that, you know, we have seen with policy. I mean, obviously, the Supreme Court and so on seems poised to undermine a lot of these efforts. But economic forces also play an important role. You know, we've seen a lot of closures of coal plants in the United States. We've seen the costs of wind and solar and other technologies coming down. As we record this, there looks like there might be some climate positive legislation passing through the U.S. Congress. 
So we see in Europe where the dependence on the Russian gas is seen as a national security threat. And so we see an alignment of national security interests and decarbonization interests. And so, you know, it might be that shifting to a, a non-fuel based or, you know, or non-carbon emitting energy technologies, it might be that national security interests are the primary driver and even a secondary driver. And so Anyway, I think there are some positive moves and reasons for hope. And I do think that there's a lot of opportunity to bring costs down. I think it's all a tough slog and success is far from assured. Maybe I'm overly doing the portfolio thing, but you know, I don't think there's one magic thing we need to do. I think we need to work on all fronts and having a diversity of people advocating and trying to advance different strategies. Well, thank you very much, Ken. Well, thank you. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.